Our New Testament lesson this morning is a familiar passage, but let us all seek to listen to it with fresh ears. I'm reading from the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, found in your pew Bible on page 850. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many times... How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat. So that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. The long days of summer are my favorite part of the year because of the seemingly endless possibilities for work and recreation. Extended daylight hours allow plenty of time for all sorts of activities, runs in the morning, walks with the dog, writing and research on a beautiful summer afternoon, and then a few holes of golf with my kids once it cools off in the evening. Many of us spend more time with family members during these months taking fun trips, getting ice cream on a hot day, or just relaxing on the back porch. I want to do a little nostalgia exercise. Close your eyes for a few seconds. I'm actually being serious. Close your eyes for a few seconds. (laughs) Now think about a particular summer that was special in your life, most likely from long ago. 
Think about what grade you had just finished, where you were living, what your house looked like, what you did that summer, what sights, sounds, and tastes do you remember? Did you travel anywhere interesting or experience something for the first time? What people were most important to you that summer and why? Okay, you can open your eyes. My guess is that one or more of your siblings popped into your mind as you reflected on that memorable summer. Perhaps those siblings are now lost to you now. Many of you undoubtedly thought about a particular brother or sister, whether they bossed you around or vice versa, and the nature of your adventures together. If you were like me, you thought about all the ways your sibling or siblings amused and annoyed you. During that particular summer, I'm sure you were by equal turns enthralled and furious with them. Some of you thought of board games, creek walks, lemonade stands, and the exhilarating feeling that life lay ahead of you with all its exciting possibilities. Our siblings know us better than anyone, perhaps even better than our spouses. They know what makes us tick, what inspires us, and most important, how to get our goat. Throughout our lives, who we are and what we decide to do is integrally tied to our relationships with our brothers and sisters. Sibling relationships get a lot of attention in the Bible, especially in Genesis. The baseline primordial sibling pair is Cain and Abel, but that story in Genesis 4 is pretty boring because it's lacking in narrative detail. Cain kills Abel so quickly that we never get a chance to know either of the characters. The same is not true, however, of Jacob and Esau. The interplay between these two figures allows us to see some of the most three-dimensional characters in Genesis. In the short scene that Barbara just read, we learn a lot about their appearances, motivations, and their relationship with one another. Jacob and Esau are actually prototypes. They exemplify categories with which we are all familiar. Esau is a man's man who works out in the field. He has strong hands and a swarthy complexion. Esau's ruddy appearance is emphasized repeatedly in the Hebrew from the passage we just read. He's a man of few words. For a helpful parallel, think about all those John Wayne movies where the hero only utters a handful of sentences out there on the prairie. I was watching one about a year ago, and he was presented with all the complexities of the Native American relationship with the white person, white people, and all he could muster was, it's a darn shame. Esau is like that. He's virile, rugged, and has a no-nonsense way of approaching life. He works when necessary, hunts when the family needs food, finishes the job, and then he eats and sleeps so he can repeat the process. Now, if you've ever spent time on a farm, you know that there's something truly admirable about such a hard-working soul, because through that labor, an entire family is able to eat and perhaps own their own land. Jacob, on the other hand, is more cerebral and devious. He can cook, and he knows how to get what he wants. He prefers staying indoors, and he spends more time with his mother who favors him. More articulate than his older brother, Jacob assesses the situation and works it to maximum advantage. 
he knows quite literally how to get Esau's goat. And unlike his brother, he sees three chess moves ahead. Think back again to that summer with your sibling, where perhaps you bargained over comic books and baseball cards. I remember one summer, I bought a bunch of paperback novels and westerns from my older sister because I knew there was a used bookstore up the street that paid cash for paperbacks. I bought the books from her for $20 and then sold them to the bookstore for 30 When she found out, she was furious. To this day, she still teases me about being a trickster. Jacob performs a slick maneuver on Esau. This is perhaps the best trickster story in the Bible. You all know the details, but let's be sure we understand the narrative. When Esau comes in from working in the field, the narrator reveals his hunger level to us. Now there's hunger, and then there's real hunger. When you've done a full day's work involving taxing manual labor, the resulting hunger pales in comparison to a late lunch at Panera because you had a conference call. Esau is really hungry, and Jacob capitalizes on his brother's vulnerable state by extracting a promise from him to sell his birthright. Esau's sarcastic response is the funniest line in the story. How will a birthright help me if I'm going to pass out and die from hunger? Of course, Jacob persists, makes Esau swear, which his older brother does, and the die is cast. Esau has lost his inheritance and his place in the pecking order as the favored son. Now, I don't want to get too academic, but just one moment of personal privilege on that score. The question of inheritance customs in ancient Israel is a complex matter. We don't fully know how these worked, and customs undoubtedly differed among families in particular localities. Biblical laws and the evidence beyond the canon indicates that the eldest son usually got a share of the inheritance, but in many instances, younger sons also got a piece of the pie, as evidenced by the story of the prodigal son. There are also a few intriguing passages that suggest inheritance for daughters, even when there were living male sons in the patriarchal society. In the case of Jacob and Esau, it seems that Esau holds the rights to his father's sizable inheritance, and he forfeits this in a moment of vulnerability. Then there's the subsequent story of how Rachel and Jacob scheme to pretend that Jacob is actually Esau in taking the blessing from a blind Isaac, and Esau storms off in a huff. He becomes enraged, threatens to kill his younger brother, and Jacob understandably fears for his life. Hostility between siblings can be a powerful thing captured in literature throughout the ages, none more famous than this story in Genesis. There is a movie that came out a few years ago that did not get enough attention. Made by director David Lynch, it's called The Straight Story. Get it on DVD, order it on Netflix, because it's one of the best films made in the last decade or so. The Straight Story tells the true story of Alvin Strait. Alvin is a 73-year-old resident of Lawrence, Iowa, a World War II veteran and a man with failing health. He has bad back, bad hips, and needs two canes to get around the house. A lifelong smoker, he's in the early stages of emphysema. Cataracts in both eyes have made it difficult to see and impossible to drive. Alvin is in very bad shape. At the beginning of the film, 
Alvin and his daughter receive a call with the news that his older brother Lyle has suffered a stroke. Alvin and Lyle grew up on a farm in Minnesota. They did everything together and were best friends for many years. Wherever Lyle went, Alvin went. The problem is that Alvin and Lyle have not seen each other in 10 years and are not on speaking terms. At the beginning of the film, Alvin confesses to friends that he and his brother said some, quote, unforgivable things the last time they met and did permanent damage to their relationship. He explains that his relationship is with, with Lyle is as old as the Bible, just like Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers. What really drove us apart, Alvin says, is his oldest human relationships, anger, vanity, liquor. Alvin decides that he wants to reconcile with his brother. The only problem is that Lyle lives in rural Wisconsin more than 300 miles away. And Alvin wants to get himself there as a gesture to his brother. No bus or train and he doesn't want anyone driving him. But he can't see well enough to drive a car. So he buys a 1965 John Deere riding lawnmower, green of course, and hitches it to a trailer. The mower only goes 5.5 miles an hour. So you do the math. It will take him weeks to drive across the cornfields of Iowa to get to his brother. But he decides to set out and thus begins one of the most beautiful journeys ever captured on film. Along the way, Alvin meets farmers and cyclists, pleasant folks, and real weirdos. During Alvin's journey, he shows us that true fulfillment can't be found in money or prestige. It only comes through relationships and kindness to those we love. Such fulfillment requires us to slow down the busyness of our lives. Alvin does slow down. He's riding a John Deere tractor, after all, stops to help others along the way, and he shows everyone he meets the value of being compassionate. His comment on sibling relationships is the best line in the movie. There's no one who knows your life more than a sibling near your age. A brother knows who you are and what you are better than anyone on earth. The movie closes with, I'm giving a spoiler alert, but you should watch it anyway, with Alvin and Lyle looking up at the stars together just as they did when they were boys. Esau actually shows up again in Genesis after these stories involving the birthright and blessing. He does not storm off in a huff, ultimately never to be heard from again. There is the amazing account of Genesis 32, which doesn't get nearly enough attention. Many years have passed and Jacob now has considerable resources. He's a wealthy man as a result of what he has gained from Isaac and from his other um, exploits. And Jacob's returning home from serving on the estate, the estate of Laban. And Esau comes to meet him with 400 men. Jacob is petrified that Esau is going to kill him as punishment for his earlier trickery. So he divides his camp in two and prays to God that this won't happen. He also sends a present to Esau of donkeys, cattle, and other goods in order to appease his older brother. When they finally meet on the road, Jacob bows down seven times in utter terror that his brother will exact revenge. Yet Esau does the opposite of what Jacob expects. He weeps 
He hugs his brother, and they share a moment of reconciliation. When Jacob offers them gifts, Esau initially refuses a real sign that he holds no grudges about past deceptions. The two of them walk along together in what is one of the most poignant moments of reconciliation in all of Scripture. Like Lyle and Alvin in the straight story, they forget past grievances and and focus on what matters, their relationship. The message too often in our world is that you should get away with what you can as long as you don't get caught. If you can game the financial system to make trades a nanosecond before everyone else without risking legal action, do it because it will make you rich. If you have a chance to become famous, take it because notoriety is far better than obscurity. If you can make a fortune on a project that poses some hazards to the environment, there's nothing wrong with proceeding because we won't be around to suffer the more catastrophic effects of climate change. Relationships can suffer within such a framework as we get the message that happiness stems from personal and professional self-advancement rather than from our ties with one another. Part of this human impulse for advancement stems from jealousy. All of us have an innate tendency to be jealous, especially of people with whom we share much in common. Looking at the parable of the prodigal son, you know the story of the younger son son, who squanders his portion of the family inheritance in another country. When this fellow seeks to become a servant on his former estate, instead of starving, his kind father instead plans a banquet in honor of the young man's return. And then sibling rivalry sets in. The older son cannot understand how the father could recognize his reckless brother with such a ceremonial feast. The elder son protests that he's worked diligently on his father's estate, and he can't fathom how in the world his father could recognize such a black sheep. Henry Nouwen writes that many of us are more like the older brother than we would care to admit. We get jealous when others are forgiven for past wrongs, and we always feel shortchanged in not getting our fair share of the pie. This parable calls us to look beyond our feelings of jealousy, not to bicker over who's going to get the family fine china and silver, and to think about our own brokenness as opposed to the failings of our siblings and friends. Perhaps our call from these two readings this morning is to take our cue from Jacob when he, Esau when he meets Jacob on the road, letting all petty grievances from the past roll, roll away. Our call is to model ourselves after the father of the prodigal son story who forgives past mistakes and only concerns himself with relationships going forward. Toward the end of the straight story, Alvin meets a Catholic priest and tells him, whatever made Lyle and me so mad at each other doesn't matter anymore. The priest simply responds, amen to that, Alvin. want to close with an admission that is a bit more personal than is usual for a sermon. My sister Elizabeth, who I just mentioned, lives in Los Angeles and is a very successful dean and professor at California State Northridge University. She and her partner, Teresa, have been together for almost 20 years now, and they have a good life and friends and many wonderful pets. 
My sister and I are more alike than either of us would like to acknowledge. Creative, somewhat restless, but able to focus on the task at hand. Talkative, competitive, stubborn, loyal, and I hope kind. It's usually the case that the people most like us drive us the craziest, is it not? Especially siblings. And like many of you with your siblings, Elizabeth and I have a tendency to bicker. Sometimes conversations with family members and friends can turn south because of online miscommunication. How would Jacob and Esau have fared if Jacob's trickery had played out on Facebook? Esau could have posted, you can't believe what this conniving little brat of a brother just did to me. Then the tension would have ratcheted up from there. My point is that misunderstandings, petty grievances, and differing opinions become magnified when we communicate online and it's necessary to take whatever steps we can to be clear, honest, and kind, never posting or emailing something we wouldn't say to another person's face. If you look at comment threads under online editorials and news stories, you will notice how miserably we were failing at this as a society. Whatever misunderstandings or grievances we've had in the past with our loved ones do not really matter in the final analysis. And I know those of us who are present who have lost siblings can attest to this more than anyone else. Reconciliation is the message of the story of Jacob and Esau. It's the message of the parable of the prodigal son. It's the message of the gospel and it is the task of our lives. I can't think of a better way to close this sermon than with a verse we just heard in church last week from Colossians 3.13. Just because we heard it last Sunday, that's all the more reason to read it again because here Paul offers one of the clearest guidelines for reconciliation that anyone could hope to hear. Let's also use it as our prayer of commitment. Let us pray. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. May it be so. Amen.